Welcome back. Uh, I, I certainly enjoyed uh, Richard Tall's talk. He's out doing a podcast for us now. He'll be back later, and you can accost him at the cocktail hour after uh, our last session. Uh, this session is on technical and legal aspects of a prospective climate instrument. We don't even know what the climate instrument's going to be unless somebody here has special knowledge, but uh, it will be very interesting to see what can and can't be done. Uh, and with this president, <clears throat> there's going to be a lot done. Uh, Roger Plon is going to be our moderator. He's the founder and director of the Center for Constitutional Studies here at the Cato Institute, uh, publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review, and adjunct professor of government at Georgetown University through the Fund for American Studies. He had five posts in the Reagan administration. Um, you can't carbon date Roger because he's older than carbon. Um, <laughs> It, I know, I'll, I'll pay for that. Uh, he won the Benjamin Franklin Award for Excellence in Writing on the U.S. Constitution from the U.S. Bicentennial Commission. He's an all-around great writer. Uh, has some great people working with him here at Cato. His writing has appeared everywhere. I could name all the acronyms if I wanted. Pick up a major publication and Google pull on under it and you're going to find something. He has a B.A. from Columbia, an M.A., a Ph.D. from the University of Chicago, uh, and a J.D. from GWU. School of Law, and he's a true gentleman, and he's going to keep the trains moving uh, more on time than Metro. Uh, so that's a serious, difficult challenge <laughs> for you. We're expecting about uh, 15 minutes per, and we'll probably finish about 10 minutes after our original schedule because we're running a little late. Thank you. All right, well, thank you very much, uh, Pat, and uh, welcome back to uh, the first of our afternoon sessions. Um, we're going to turn now to, uh, as Pat said, the legal and technical aspects of any uh, new climate agreement. And in so doing, uh, we're reminded once again that as a matter of law among nations, we're still in a theoretical state of nature, whether Hobbesian or Lockean is open to question. Hobbesians uh, fear that if we don't give up most of our rights to the UN bodies, through the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change Conference of the, of the parties, our lives due to climate change will soon be solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Lockeans, by contrast, say it's not all that bad, really, and that uh, as the world gets richer, the environment will get better, a little warmer, perhaps, but who knows for sure. And given that uncertainty, is it really worth giving up those rights, after all, especially to the gnomes in Turtle Bay. But as a legal matter, from the American perspective, there are further complications. We are, after all, a sovereign nation living under a constitution that limits what government can do, even the president, although you'd hardly know it under the current president. Um, can he, for example, with a stroke of a pen, bind the US and the US economy in particular to such far-reaching commitments as are envisioned by many of the climate change zealots? Or is a treaty the constitutional way to go about this? Or after the Supreme Court's sweeping 2007 5-4 decision in Massachusetts v. EPA and subsequent developments, are those questions effectively moot? Here to discuss these and related technical issues, we have a dis distinguished panel of experts I'll introduce each one before he speaks. 
We're going to hear first from Andrew Grossman, who is a graduate of Dartmouth and University of Pennsylvania's Fells Institute of Government and the George Mason University School of Law. He clerked for Judge Edith Jones on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Currently, he practices appellate and constitutional litigation in Washington in Baker v. Hotstetler. He's written widely on law and finance, bankruptcy law, national security law, and the constitutional separation of powers, and is a frequent advisor to Congress on complex legal and policy issues, particularly concerning constitutional limitations on federal power. He's testified numerous times before both the House and the Senate Judiciary Committees. In addition to articles in journals and professional publications, uh, his uh, writings have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, the Washington Post, LA Times, and other places. He's appeared frequently on television, on Fox News Channel, CNN, MSNBC, NPR, and so forth. He's written amicus briefs for the Cato Institute in several cases before the U.S. Supreme Court and, is the, federal, and the Federal Courts of Appeals. Prior to joining Cato as an adjunct scholar, he was affiliated for over a decade with the Heritage Foundation, most recently serving as a legal fellow in Heritage's Edward Meese Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Please welcome Andrew Grossman. Thank you, Roger. Uh, good afternoon. Um, let me begin with what I think will be a provocative statement. President Obama has no legal authority to adopt any climate agreement coming out of Paris without obtaining the consent of two-thirds of the Senate as required by the Constitution's treaty clause. Come on, I thought I'd hear some applause or something. Is that provocative enough for you? Now, a better question, I think, is whether that's true. Um, in other words, is it really the case that the president lacks the legal authority to adopt the Paris Protocol or the Paris Accord or whatever you want to call it as an executive agreement without a Senate vote? And let me admit something. I don't know. Other people, as I understand it, have very strong views on that question. And it's certainly an interesting question. It's a matter of legal theory. It's a matter of constitutional meaning. Um, it's something that can be debated among law school faculty members and think tank scholars. But I think that when you understand the underlying legal issues, it turns out that the law really doesn't matter very much and probably won't make a difference one way or the other. Now, let me explain why. The legal status of the Paris Agreement, let's just call it that, involves two kinds of issues. First, obviously, there's the contents of the agreement itself. Second, it also involves the extent to which those contents can impose binding legal obligations on the United States and within the United States. Now, logically, these are separate questions. Not every international agreement becomes US law or, is inter or interacts with US law. But as a practical matter, they're very interconnected here. The president wants to negotiate an agreement with which the United States is a participant, not a bystander. And in theory, that means he has to grapple with the requirements that US law imposes regarding international agreements and attempt to negotiate an agreement that actually stands a chance of becoming law in the United States. Now, that's really what the question is. If you take these obligations or statements or whatever it is that happens to be in this international agreement, how is it they translate over into US domestic law? Now, in general, there are two ways that that can happen. Everybody, of course, is familiar with the Treaty Clause. It's in Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution. And it empowers the President of the United States to propose and chiefly negotiate uh, agree international agreements, which then must be confirmed by two-thirds of the United States Senate, in other words, 67 votes. 
The second means, somewhat less uh, popularly understood, but certainly no less salient, uh, consists of executive agreements. Now, these can be entered into without ratification by the Senate. Instead, the pre president's signature uh, constitutes ratification itself. Um, relevant to this discussion, there are three varieties of executive agreements. One is a so-called congressional executive agreement. Congress votes uh, to approve an agreement as, just, as it would vote with normal uh, legislation. This is commonly done for treaties, uh, for trade agreements, uh, things like NAFTA, for example. Um, sometimes the authorization can precede the agreement. This might consist of uh, certain types of trade negotiating authority or, or prospective uh, authorization to enter into certain types of deals. Sometimes it comes later. Second are treaty executive agreements. In other words, this, this consists effectively of adding annexes or additions or protocols pursuant to the terms of treaties that have already been ratified. For example, the United States is a party to the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. Every time a new orchid or something is added to CITES protection, the Senate doesn't need to ratify it. There's a protocol among the countries uh, by, what, by which that can be achieved. The third is a solo executive agreement. In other words, something that is based solely on the president's own authority. Um, this could be, could be his constitutional authority, for example, his role as commander in chief and as representative of the nation in foreign affairs. Uh, for example, that could consist of recognition of a foreign state. Um, potentially, it could also rely on statutory authority. Uh, for example, the Algiers Accords uh, terminated private lawsuits in US courts against Iran and released Iranian property that was frozen in exchange for the release of US hostages that were then held by Iran. Now, those accords were upheld by the Supreme Court in a case called Dames and Moore versus Regan. Now, key in that case was that the agreement was consistent with US policy, as evidenced by a wide range of statutes concerning, uh, concerning and I'll use the court, court's broad words here, the president's authority to deal with international crises and from the history of congressional acquiescence in executive claims settlement. In other words, there was nothing really exactly on point, but close enough. Um, the boundaries of these, uh, of these types of agreements and of this power to engage in sole executive agreements uh, for, for that reason is somewhat uncertain and a little bit fuzzy. But I think really the root question here is, is, is there any difference between a treaty and an executive agreement? In other words, is there any difference in terms of the scope and the subject matter? Is it the case that there are certain things that can only be entered into as treaties and, uh, and therefore can't be undertaken merely as executive agreements? Um, there really isn't a lot of precedent on that precise point. Uh, according to the United States Department of State, the only difference between the two is that a treaty is ratified by the Senate. In other words, the issue is entirely procedural. There is no class of agreements in the view of the State Department um, that can only be ratified as treaties rather than by the executive acting alone. Now, as you might expect, the Senate takes a somewhat different view. In its view, any significant international commitment must be entered into as a treaty. And in certain areas, at least, that view is, has generally carried the day, particularly in the area of environmental protection, at least according to a, a survey of international agreements conducted by the Congressional Research Service. So where does this leave the president and the Paris Agreement? Well, one thing we can say for sure is that it's not going to be ratified as a treaty. The votes aren't there. There's no way that 67 votes are going to carry the day for any kind of agreement that might result uh, from the Paris uh, meeting. Um, it would also be pointless in a certain sense. Um, the Paris Agreement, whatever form it takes, whatever provisions it contains, is not one that's likely to be considered under U.S. law to be self-executing. In other words, it would require some form of implementing uh, legislation to take effect within the United States. And that, of course, would require 
uh, a separate vote by Congress. In other words, passing legislation through Congress. So that would just raise an additional problem. There probably aren't enough votes to do that either. Um, so this probably isn't going to go into force as a congressional executive agreement either, because again, the votes simply aren't there. So that leaves the question, you've got these two other kinds of executive agreements. How does that work? Uh, is this something that the president can simply do unilaterally on his own? Well, I think to answer that question, we actually have to look at the substance of the agreement itself. So why don't we turn to that? Now, of course, the agreement at this point is still in discussion drafts and uh, all these uh, kinds of option-based uh, papers. And uh, if you've seen these, uh, the, the, the most recent is a 55-page long document uh, with uh, plenty of brackets and more options than you'd find at your typical, on your typical diner menu. Um, but according to reports, the United States, at least, is pushing for what uh, the Department of State calls a hybrid agreement. In other words, portions of it would be binding as a matter of law. Portions of it would merely be political commitments. In other words, they would carry no legal weight. Now, one thing, the area that the, United, that the uh, administration expects to be binding are chief, chiefly concerns procedural commitments. In other words, to put forward an intended nationally determined contribution, in other words, an INDC, to provide and update supporting information regarding sources, emission rates, mitigation programs, and so on, to update the INDC throughout the life of the agreement, to report on implementation measures, to report on financial commitments to poor nations and technology transfer, and to accept comments on all of these different things from other parties. So these would be procedural commitments, and they would be binding in some sense. The agreement would state that there's a legal obligation to file these kinds of reports, to compile the data, and so on. What would not be binding in this view are the INDCs, in other words, the actual reductions, uh, or even implementation of the INDCs. There's a slight distinction between those two concepts, but I don't, I don't think it's relevant for this. The point is, is that those types of targets and the reductions would, in the end, not be legally binding. They would merely be a political commitment. And the same, of course, would be true for financial commitments as well to provide money to developing countries. Now, all of these things are in flux. The developing nations, of course, want financial commitments. Some EU nations want the INDCs to be binding. Others want implementation measures to be binding without the actual rates themselves being binding. The current draft agreement is very confused on these points and has all kinds of different options on all of these issues. For example, one proposed article on compliance would establish, and let me read this to you, an international tribunal of climate justice to rule on countries' compliance on, quote, mitigation, adaptation, provision of finance, technology development, and transfer and capacity building. And it would have the power to exact punishment on nations that don't live up to their commitments. What kind of punishment is not said? An alternative to that option, in other words, an alternative specifically to this uh, international tribunal, um, is simply, and I quote, no reference to facilitating implementation and compliance. In other words, just strike it out altogether. And of course, uh, being an international agreement, there are plenty of options, and there's a third option, and that is to set up a committee to hold more meetings and publish yet another report. Um, so which of all these different options on these variety of issues could the president actually accept on his own through an international agreement? Well, to begin with, non-binding political, uh, political commitments aren't really a problem. There's a long history of the United States undertaking uh, aspirational agreements, um, things that don't really have any binding legal force. And there is indeed, if you look at the draft, lots and lots and lots of aspirational and advisory language. Now, this is all the stuff that comes right up top. Uh, for example, uh, emphasizing the need for universal and sustained action by all to respond to the urgent threat of climate change based on the best available and universally recognized scientific knowledge. It's a great thing to say, I suppose. Um, and certainly, these types of provisions have been very hard fought in the meetings so far. Uh, but 
technically speaking, they don't really have any binding effect. Um, this also includes somewhat more controversial matters. For example, the long-term goal of the agreement. Uh, the US uh, proposed uh, in the most recent meetings, quote, decarbonization of the global economy over the course of this century. And it won lots of plaudits uh, from activists for doing that. Uh, but at the same time, it really doesn't require anyone to do anything in particular. Um, as to reporting provisions, well, there's a strong argument that they would probably be supported by the president's power to communicate with foreign governments, which is an inherent part of the, of the president's foreign policy powers. Um, they would also arguably be authorized by the uh, United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which the United States ratified uh, as a treaty in 1992. Um, that convention um, had a variety of reporting requirements that were simply phrased in very broad language. For example, countries committed to update and publish national inventories of anthropogenic emissions by sources and removals by sinks of all greenhouse gases, um, and a number of other reporting commitments. The, as I said, these were phrased in very general terms, and arguably, uh, the Paris Agreement would simply add a little bit of meat to those bones and specify exactly what it is that needs to be uh, what needs to be reported. And in that sense, it could arguably be defended as a treaty executive agreement uh, and premised on that power. What about financial commitments? In other words, the idea of the United States would commit itself to giving money to uh, developing countries. Well, certainly that can be adopted as a political commitment, which is something that uh, President Obama has done previously. But it would be very problematic to adopt this in any type of binding form, uh, given the constitutional uh, placement of the appropriations power in the United States Congress. Uh, at the same time, uh, my understanding, at least of the negotiations, is that making those commitments binding uh, seems unlikely at this point. But the key question, I think, the one that everyone is focused on, is what about these INDCs, the reductions? Are they binding? Are they not binding? Well, first of all, they're not supported by the Framework Convention. It doesn't say anything about them. So this clear, they clearly can't be supported as an aspect of a treaty executive agreement. Now, some have argued that they are, however, supported by, internet, by existing law. And I'm pretty sure that Peter Glazier will discuss some of that, particularly um, the, ex the executives in the, the EPA's uh, authority under the Clean Air Act, uh, and, and in particular, Section 111 of the Clean Air Act, where there have been so many actions uh, as of late. Um, other people have pointed to Clean Air Act Section 115, which is a broad and obscure and basically never, uh, very rarely used provision that authorizes EPA to regulate admissions whenever it has, quote, reason to believe that those admissions cause or contribute to air pollution, which may reasonably be anticipated to endanger public health or welfare in a foreign country. Now, arguably, um, the binding, you know, binding INDCs might be consistent with that statutory language, or at least even if, even if the statutory language doesn't directly support them, in other words, even if it doesn't provide precise authority, it's at least consistent, it's at least close enough, and it's the kind of thing that in Dames and Moore, the Supreme Court suggested at least, eh, you know, at least evinces some type of policy to do this sort of thing, which apparently is close enough. And certainly the administration uh, has many creative lawyers, and they could surely point to a boatload of random statutory provisions that they would say supports this general policy of imposing binding emissions limits. Now, there are counterarguments. One is that when the uh, Senate ratified the Framework Convention, it exacted a promise from the Bush administration that future protocols containing targets and timetables would be submitted to the Senate for ratification. Similarly, uh, in 1997, the Senate uh, passed 95 to 0 the Byrd-Hagel Resolution, 
um, which stated that any binding reductions must include both developing countries and must not seriously injure U the US economy. The legislative history of that also indicates a very firm uh, resolve that any, ty any type of timetable and reduction uh, commitments would have to be uh, put, for the, put, for, put before the Senate for ratification. And indeed, that was taken as a given uh, in the United States' uh, history uh, with, re with regarding the Kyoto Protocol. In the end, uh, due to the, uh, the Byrd-Hagel uh, resolution, it was never submitted for ratification uh, to the Senate. It never went into effect. Now, as a lawyer, you would look at that and you would say, well, that's a pretty similar protocol, uh, at least in the particulars that are at issue here. And so that's very strong precedent. But let me argue that this question is probably largely academic. The issue will never get to the courts because no one has standing to challenge it. Any type of action that would render binding commitments actionable as a matter of US law would require some form of implementing legislation. And at that point, once there was legislation, that legislation would stand on its own. Surely, uh, under existing uh, precedent, Congress's existing Commerce Clause power is sufficient to allow it to regulate these types of emissions. And presumably, if there were ever the votes to do so, that's what it would do. And that's how the, uh, any type of binding commitments, uh, commitments would be implemented. Now, one possible exception would be compliance mechanisms. It is a very big deal in terms of US sovereignty and, and constitutional power to subject the United States to the sovereignty and discretion of an international body. This would be something like the International Climate Justice Tribunal. Now, a court uh, reviewing this might find that it's beyond the pale, that it's something that whatever lies at the heart of the exclusive treaty power, something that has to be done as a treaty, a court might well find that that would be it. Who knows where the line is, but that's on the other side of the line. And it's certainly possible that the Senate as a body could sue, not individual senators, but perhaps the whole Senate. That seems unlikely to happen. In other words, that there will be this type of tribunal. And to be fair, the standing theory is a little bit speculative. There's precedent on both sides, and it's not a sure thing one way or the other. But it seems that that's unlikely to happen, just given the status of the negotiations at present. Now, I think it's fair to say that there is a settled understanding among legal commentators that something like binding commitments would, in fact, have to go to the Senate and shouldn't be part of something that is merely an executive agreement. Um, it would really just be pushing the envelope, even if the legal precedents are somewhat unclear. And let me note that even groups that are cheerleader for the president uh, to, to adopt a very strong uh, agreement in Paris um, have come out and said this. That includes the Center for American Progress and the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions. In their view, legally binding commitments would probably be a step too far. But one thing that this administration has excelled at is running roughshod over settled understandings that aren't backed by legal consequences. So why should this be any different? This is essentially, I think, in the end, a political question. Not necessarily in the legal sense, where a court could say, we're just not going to get into this and not going to decide, but in a more immediate sense, which is the president and his advisors will likely decide this based on political considerations. The reasons against putting binding targets uh, in, 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 a, in, in an executive agreement might be a backlash. Would there be one? Would a backlash contribute to the narrative that the president is abusing executive power? Could it be counterproductive if it rallies opposition or puts his political party and compatriots in a tough spot? But the arguments in favor of the president doing this, again, just pure raw politics, uh, point strongly in the opposite direction. 
it would be very powerful to say, for the president to say, that the United States is not living up to its international obligations because it's failed to adhere to a particular binding commitment. It would certainly place pressure on his successor, whoever that may be, uh, to engage uh, in further actions to reduce US emissions. And from the president's point of view, it would show US leadership and portray the president as a pragmatic uh, person willing to go to the mat on climate issues. It would show him to be aggressive and powerful. And you can ex just imagine what the editorials would look like uh, in the newspapers. Now, so far, the United States has, it should be said, paid lip service to the settled understandings. But I don't see if there's any reason to rely on that. When you add up the pluses and the minuses, it seems like the administration would be willing to sign off on an agreement with binding emissions reductions. And it might even use this policy change, this turnabout, as an opportunity to build momentum and to place the United States in what it views to be a leadership role. And binding reductions could be a good bargaining chip to play against compliance measures and binding financial commitments, the two things that the United States absolutely cannot accept. Now, is this a good thing? Well, I suppose it depends on what you think about the agreement. Arguably, it's a bad thing for representative democracy and the constitutional separation of powers. But that just seems to be the way things go with climate policy in this administration. And I'm sure that's a subject about which Peter may have more to say. Thank you. Well, thank you, Andrew. We're going to now hear from Peter Glazer. Uh, he is a graduate of Middlebury College and the George Washington School of Law. He's partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Troutman Sanders, LLP, and he practices at the intersection of energy and environmental law. <clears throat> he represents electric utility, mining, and other energy industry companies and associations. He specializes in environmental regulation and litigation, particularly in the area of air quality and global climate change. He's participated in numerous EPA and judicial proceedings in various state and welcome and, and federal sitting, um, citing and permitting proceedings. He's testified before various congressional committees on a number of occasions on climate change matters and speaks frequently on climate change and air quality topics to industry and professional groups. Please welcome Peter Glazer. Well, thank you very much uh, for having me. Uh, I thought what I'd do is talk um, primarily about the EPA Clean Power Plan, because at the end of the day, um, that really is where the action is in trying to um, obtain aggressive CO2 emission reductions. Um, I know David will talk a little bit more about uh, what portion of the US's INDC uh, the Clean Power Plan represents. It is, of course, a substantial portion. Uh, it has to be because Clean Power Plan goes after coal-fired power plants, and coal-fired power plants are now the dominant source of CO2 emissions in the economy. <clears throat> that is where um, you need to get significant, redition, uh, significant emission reductions from uh, if you're going to aggressively cut CO2 emissions, and uh, that is why the, the administration has pinned so much of its hopes uh, on the Clean Power Plan. I'll just talk a minute about the Clean Power Plan, but I want to actually talk more broadly about where things are going with carbon regulation in the United States, given that, in my view, we sort of stand on a hinge point now. We, we have sort of come to the end of a long process uh, of trying to find, uh, from the environmental community's point of view, an alternative to cap-and-trade legislation um, and whether that opportunity really is out there under the Clean Air Act, we will find out soon. 
So you know the Clean Power Plan was adopted in, uh, on uh, August 3rd of this year. Uh, you know that after a very long uh, wind-up, EPA finally got the thing published in the Federal Register last Friday. Um, the morning that they published the Federal Register, um, a bunch of organizations uh, petitioned for review uh, and filed motions for stay. Uh, there were additional petitions for review filed this week, additional uh, motions for stay. Right now we have uh, 26 states uh, that have uh, uh, challenged the rule in court and have asked uh, the court to stay the rule. Uh, we have numerous business organizations. So far there have been three groupings, one uh, sort of coal industry grouping, one a utility industry grouping, and another uh, sort of a general business community grouping. Uh, the court uh, has gone ahead and issued an order uh, creating a procedural schedule for the briefing of these stay motions that will have uh, the final brief uh, on the stay motions going in on December 23rd, mercifully uh, before the Christmas uh, holiday. Um, when will the court decide on the motions for stay? You know, who knows? Could be a month, could be less than that. Um, the petitioners have put a very large number of pages uh, before of the court. Uh, EPA's rule is um, an order of magnitude larger in terms of number of pages. The court has a lot to chew through uh, before it uh, issues uh, a stay decision. Uh, stays are uh, defined by the court as an extraordinary remedy, and the court means what it says. It rarely grants stays. Um, but, uh, you know, as a petitioner in this case, uh, I think we've got a pretty good shot. Um, the petitions also ask for expedited briefing on the merits. It typically takes a year and a half, maybe even two years to get through the D.C. Circuit uh, from the time you file your petition to the time you finally get a decision out of the court. Um, and so the ask uh, has been made for something, uh, you know, sooner than that, uh, and then it's up to the Supreme Court. Uh, and that process could take a year, year and a half, two years, depending on how things fall out on the uh, court's calendars. So that process is now moving uh, to a conclusion, and it's an extremely important process, uh, given the history of efforts in this country to address uh, CO2 emission reductions. Uh, you know, you're all aware that for decades now we have had efforts in Congress to adopt cap-and-trade uh, legislation, and those efforts have uh, uh, never been successful. Um, we also know that uh, we've had this alternative process to try to regulate carbon dioxide emissions through the Clean Air Act. That process also has a fairly long lineage, going back uh, all the way to the Clinton administration. Um, but those who pushed uh, regulation of uh, carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases through the Clean Air Act have always been pretty clear that they view that as a second best choice. Uh, they understand, um, like industry understands, that the Clean Air Act, originally written in 1970 before anybody had really ever heard about climate change, um, was not structured around globally circulating pollutants like uh, carbon dioxide. Uh, it was structured for more traditional types of air pollution. Uh, obviously, the proponents of greenhouse gas regulation achieved a victory in the Supreme Court in Massachusetts versus EPA uh, when the court said, well, you know, the act regulates air pollutants. It defines air pollutants as, you know, any substance emitted to the air and, you know, come on, carbon dioxide is emitted to the air and so there is authority here to regulate if EPA makes an endangerment finding. But the court didn't go much further than that. And in fact, its decision was couched in terms of regulating greenhouse gas emissions from motor vehicles. 
Uh, and we know that in the next case that went to the Supreme Court, the tailoring rule case, the so-called UR case, the court sort of backed off a little bit and said, well, you know, all we said in Massachusetts was that greenhouse gas emissions were air pollutants for purposes of motor vehicle regulation, not necessarily for permitting of large stationary sources. And so they backed off a bit. And they also sternly warned EPA about uh, trying to aggressively assert power uh, under the Clean Air Act uh, to um, uh, assert a role that Congress never intended. Uh, th those words, which I, I know you've all seen quoted a million times by now, uh, almost seem as if they were written uh, for the Clean Power Plan. Now, the reason why what happens next on the Clean Power Plan is so important is because EPA really only has one provision in the Clean Air Act where it can really get after sources of greenhouse gas emissions from large industrial facilities like coal plants, and that's 111D. Uh, the permitting provisions that were at issue in the UR case, in the tailoring rule case, address permitting of new sources, and everybody knows we're not at the present building a lot of new uh, coal-fired power plants, or modified sources. Um, but really, in order to get significant greenhouse gas emission reductions, you have to hit the existing fleet, and the only way to do that is under Section 111D. Section 111D, I will be perfectly frank with you, is a provision that 10 years ago I had barely heard of. Um, that's how rare its implementation was. Uh, it became sort of a big issue again when uh, EPA, during the Bush administration, um, you know, pushed the clean air mercury rule and tried to invoke Section 111D. And that ultimately went uh, nowhere. Uh, but um, prior to that, 111D had only been used five times since 1970. It's sort of a backwater provision of the Act, and EPA is trying to um, impute a great deal of authority into that provision that would probably surprise the Congress that originally enacted it in 1970. If the courts now rule that 111D is not a path to these sort of dramatic society-wide or, or in, at least industrial source category-wide emissions of CO2 uh, that EPA thinks it is, then effectively the way is shut under the Clean Air Act uh, as a way of uh, obtaining um, greenhouse gas or significant greenhouse gas emission reductions. Um, and that is why, you know, having been involved with this sort of since the beginning, from the very first time that Carol Browner went up on Capitol Hill during the Clinton administration and was, was testifying in the context of concerns about, you know, Kyoto through the back door, as you may recall. You know, when she sort of let, let loose that, hey, we don't care whether Kyoto's ratified because we think we have authority under the Clean Air Act. So for, from that time forward, we've been in this sort of arc of seeing, well, if you can't get cap-and-trade legislation, can you do it under the Clean Air Act? And that process is now coming to a close. So that's the way I sort of look at where we are right now on greenhouse gas regulation. Um, I, I know that you know, probably one rejoinder to what I've said is, well, look what they've done with transportation. Look at cars. Uh, EPA has now adopted regulations that um, set um, motor, you know, they, they, are, they, they are the equivalent of 50, I think it's 55 miles a gallon by 2025. That's extraordinary, and that's transformative 
And I would agree with that, except EPA, not EPA, but the administration always had authority to do that under the CAFE program. They didn't need the Clean Air Act for that. They need the Clean Air Act to hit coal and to hit other large sources of industrial CO2 emissions in the economy. Uh, and we may very well be sort of uh, at the end of that process. So, you know, whatever happens in Paris and whatever happens after uh, Paris, the specific implementation of CO2 emission reductions in the United States is now sort of, you know, in the balance um, and will be resolved, uh, I think, within the next few years. And if it's resolved against EPA and against the current uh, position, we're, then we're back to where we've been for a long time, which is that Congress uh, would have to resolve the issue. So let me stop there and, um, and let David talk. Thank you, David. Uh, we're now going to hear finally from David Bookbinder. Excuse me, thank you, Peter. Um, David is a um, graduate of Princeton and the University of Chicago Law School. Uh, he began practicing law at Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison before forming Element 6, an environmental consulting firm. His public interest career included litigating cases under all the major environmental statutes, including as Sierra Club's chief climate counsel, initiating and then managing Massachusetts v. EPA, following which he represented environmental groups in both stationary and mobile source carbon matters. Dealing with Congress and federal agencies, uh, he helped uh, lead efforts on global warming legislation and Clean Air Act greenhouse gas regulation, has testified in front of the House and Senate committees, and has advised states as to their CO2 regulatory authority. He has designed and taught courses on environmental litigation at Georgetown University Law Center and environmental law and science at the William & Mary Law School Virginia Institute of Marine Science, and has served on the boards of several nonprofit groups. Please welcome David Bookbinder. Thank you. Um, first, I'm going to say things that uh, you're going to like to hear, then I'm going to say things you're not going to like to hear. Um, one of the things I didn't put that I, when I, Pat Michaels asked for my bio, um, I didn't send him the part that's up on my, our website that says, uh, you know, Mr. Bookbinder frequently tells uh, members of Congress, environmental groups, and industries things they don't necessarily want to hear. So I'll continue with that. But what you probably want to hear about is the United States, the INDC, the Intentional Nationally Determined Contribution. Do I have that right? Do I? Intended. There we go. Um, uh, it, Andrew and I were talking before about how we can never remember what the letters INDC stand for because it's incredible bureaucratic baffle gap. Um, the idea it's intended nationally determined contribution as opposed to what? An unintended nationally determined contribution. Um, the whole UN process is filled with this sorts of, you know, completely obscure bureaucratic language. Uh, but in any event, the United States submitted an INDC, and it said we would reduce our emissions um, by 2025. We would reduce them from the 2005 level by 26 to 28%. 2005, 2025, let's call it 26%. Um, the administration, first when it had 
entered into agreements or some, some handshake deals with the Chinese about what was going to be proposed in Paris, and then in the actual INDC document said, and we're going to get those reductions using the following mechanisms. Um, and here we're getting to total fantasy. The, the numbers don't add up. I mean, and it's not hard to do the arithmetic. The, the administration laid out specific fields. It talked about the clean power plant. It talked about the HFC regulations. It talked about landfill methane standards, oil and gas industry, exploration methane standards, uh, vehicle emission standards. Very clear what they were, what they were talking about. And so we're going to use these um, these particular regulatory tools to get to where we want to be. Um, if you add them up, if you add up all of the numbers that EPA says you will get, whether they're in the final rules like the Clean Power Plan or the, the, the HFC program or just in proposed rules like landfill uh, uh, methane or the proposed new set of heavy-duty vehicle emission standards, we are way, way, way short of what we've committed to in Paris. Um, we're about 40% short, and that's assuming that every single one of those standards is implemented on a timely schedule, survives judicial review, and produces the emissions reductions that EPA discusses. So the, I, the US INDC is, a, in some sense, a fantasy document. It is completely aspirational. And we will not be reducing our emissions by 26% by 2025, no matter what happens. So we're short. We're short on the INDC. And I don't think it really matters one way or the other, because I think, as Andrew said, Paris, in some sense, is completely academic. From a hardcore legal enforcement compliance viewpoint, there's not going to be anything coming out of Paris that's binding. Um, and to the extent something is binding, it has the word binding or the phrase binding legal commitments. I started my career as an enforcement lawyer. Um, what happens if you violate this binding legal commitment? Nothing. Nothing. Um, there's no discussion no serious discussion. I mean, you've got 160 countries running around talking. There's no serious discussion um, among the countries that there's going to be any penalty whatsoever, even if there's going to be you know, a, a binding commitment and someone misses it. Um, the only discussion is whether or not they, uh, the other countries actually offer to help or merely encourage the country to meet those targets. So I think what we're dealing with in Paris really should not get people too worried, too excited, too panicked about what may or may not happen. Uh, we've made a commitment we can't live up to, and in any event, it's not binding. And even if by some stretch of imagination it were to become binding, there's no compliance enforcement mechanism. OK, that's Paris. And since I've got some extra time up here, and, uh, and Peter was talking about the clean power plan, and and uh, carbon regula regulation. Um, the one thing I wanted to say about the Clean Power Plan, there are only two decisions in the legal path it takes that matter at all. Um, the first one is whether the DC Circuit grants a stay. And 
That's important because it would slow down implementation. Everyone says, okay, it stayed. When we go back to doing everything else, we're not going to pay any attention to this rule. What the D.C. Circuit says on the merits is utterly meaningless because the Supreme Court will decide this. Um, they've taken all three of the greenhouse gas cases that have petitioned for review. They will absolutely take this one. And what does that mean? That means this is all up to Justice Kennedy because he was the swing vote in each of those three cases completely. So the entire CPP hinges on two things. Justice Kennedy and who becomes president in the 2016 election. That's it. Nothing else matters. So if you get a Republican president in 2016, the Clean Power Plan is dead. Bury it. Forget it. If you get a Democratic president, presumably Hillary Clinton, the Clean Power Plan cruises ahead. And then we wait for what Justice Kennedy says. Now, Peter is correct. He's totally correct about 111D. This is the only mechanism for dealing with carbon dioxide emissions from smokestacks, from industrial facilities. Um, I have to confess, being a little kind of ahead of Peter in terms of when I became familiar with 111D, we were extremely aware of 111D early on in the Massachusetts case in the early 2000s because the Clean Air Act has a logical progression of what happens. You know, if they have the authority, they have to do this, and once they make this decision, they have to do this, because the act is filled with words like EPA shall, EPA shall, which creates mandatory duties. Now, it may take a long time. You may have to sue EPA repeatedly, but slowly they have to do these things. So we were kind of aware of, of 111D a long, long time ago. Peter's right. If 111D doesn't work, then EPA can't deal with um, CO2, which is precisely why if I was a betting person, I bet that Justice Kennedy upholds the rule. Because I think Justice Kennedy will, will look at this in the sense of, on the one hand, this is a, a rule that puts a federal agency deep, deep into the American economy, into the means of the means of production, energy, electricity, what our society and economy run on, and a bunch of bureaucrats at EPA who really don't understand those sorts of things and, and don't necessarily have any regulatory understanding of the grid, we're going to turn a lot of that authority over to these guys. That's, from my perspective, that's not a good situation. And as Peter also said, it's second best. We all want Congress to do something. Justice Kennedy's going to say that on the one hand, there's that. And on the other hand, the federal government, the executive branch, can do absolutely nothing to reduce emissions of a pollutant, which the majority of scientific, the scientific consensus is, is going to have really, really bad effects. And the United States government will be paralyzed and can't do anything. I think Justice Kennedy goes this way. Totally, don't know. We'll find out in late 2018 or early 2019. Um, and uh, obviously, we'll get the, the, the stay decision uh, from the DC Circuit sooner. Um, my guess would be sometime in March. I don't know if that's Peter's, maybe sooner than that. Um, uh, then we get the election results in November. 
Um, and then we, we wait for several years till we get the, the final results. But I think that's how things are going to play out. Um, and uh, I look forward to seeing how things develop over time. Thank you. Well, thank you, David. Um, and before we turn to your questions, I'm going to follow up on, on Pat Michael's suggestion this morning that the moderator um, be invited to ask the first question and to get the debate going among ourselves by uh, raising a point that David just raised, that if uh, not much of a binding sword is going to come out of Paris, um, Let's look at what Peter spoke to, which is binding as domestic law, and ask Andrew to start the discussion uh, with that aspect that he did not address, understandably, because his subject was different, namely the very delegation of authority from Congress to the executive branch through acts like the uh, Clean Air Act, which gives the agencies such vast and unaccountable authority to pretty much do as they please, and do you see any hope for calling into question at least some aspects of the non-delegation doctrine? Uh, Rod, it's a very interesting question. Um, That's why I, I asked it. <laughs> and. I mean, as a practical matter, the answer is probably no. Um, you, you know, the leading case on the issue, of course, is um, the uh, the Whitman case, uh, Whitman versus American Trucking Association. A and recent case, the NBC case of '43, was the one that they actually decided that they would get rid of the right. non-delegation doctrine. Right. And so, you know, at this point, you know, the court has set uh, an intelligible principle standard. And if you were to look and apply Whitman, you would have to, you would almost certainly have to say that um, Section 111D satisfies Whitman's uh, requirements. Um, but I think if you wanted to distinguish it and you wanted to say, well, maybe this time is different, um, and I think this is going to, by the way, I think this is going to be an undercurrent in the litigation. I don't think it's going to be a non-delegation claim or anything of that sort, but I think it's an idea that when Congress was looking at, when Congress enacted Section 111D, as both Peter and David said, this is not at all what they were thinking about. Um, and the idea... Well, does that raise then the question of whether there's an intelligible principle? Well, I think, I think again, I think this will filter into the court's thinking in the sense that... Uh, when, when, when Congress was looking at this, they never intended that uh, this control over the electricity sector and the power generation sector was going to be vested within the EPA under this very vague and broad statutory provision. So it's not exactly going to be a non-delegation challenge, but it'll be something where the court may be more inclined to read limitations in the statute or to observe the limitations that are there than it might otherwise, given that the result, if they don't do that, is this very broad and unbounded power. Peter, do you... Well, do I need to push something? No, you're on. I'm alive. Um, I think I agree with that. I'm not sure non-delegation will be the constitutional doctrine at issue here, but there will be constitutional issues that are raised and arguments that, um, you know, the way things work when you're in court, there's a doctrine of constitutional avoidance where courts want to avoid constitutional questions if they can. Uh, we saw that recently in the um, Affordable Act, uh, Affordable uh, Care Act case. 
Um, and so we'll interpret a law to um, make it uh, legal or illegal on other grounds to, to avoid the constitutional issues. But there, there certainly are uh, constitutional issues concerning commandeering of state authority. Uh, states traditionally um, are the ones that regulate uh, electric utilities um, on a retail level, on an intrastate basis, which has always included electric generation. Um, so there are a number of very interesting constitutional questions here. Of course, New York and Prince dealt with government agencies, and here we're dealing with private entities. Right, and so, yeah, I mean, there are a number of different constitutional issues, but we, we have really solid statutory questions that, that you know, we, we, the, the operative language on all of this is the best system of emission reduction. EPA is allowed to call on states to submit plans, uh, that set forth um, standards of performance uh, for pollutants. And those standards of performance have to be based on the best system of emission reduction. And, and for the entire 45-year history of this statute, that's always meant pollution controls or some sort of operating practices at the regulated facilities. It's never meant reorganizing an entire industry, which is what's going on here. So that's the, one of the, the central issues, and that's just a classic statutory interpretation question. David, um, I think Peter is doing an excellent job of looking at the, the statutory language. And there are a lot of, I guess we're Clean Air Act geeks, and we get interested in things like this. Um, as I said before, I don't think that matters. I think that's not going to be what Justice Kennedy cares about. I think he's going to say the choice is, do I let EPA, do I give this authority to EPA? Or do I say the federal government can't do anything about carbon dioxide? That's it. And, and if he says in his mind, I don't think EPA should have this authority, he can pick and choose whichever argument he feels like accepting. Um, if he says better that EPA have this authority than the, than the federal government can do nothing about carbon dioxide, there are going to be plenty of reasons advanced that he can come down on that side of it. I hate to be cynical and both cynical and pragmatic, but that really is all that the case is about. Any other issues that were raised among? Yes, Andrew. If if I could respond to that, I think you know when 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 trying to read the tea leaves regarding Justice Kennedy, I mean one thing that one has to keep in mind uh, all the time, it's ever present in his questioning and in his writing, is um, to, to to use a phrase, his special solicitude for the states, um, and this is really uh, a case, uh, the Clean Power Plan, that just bristles uh, with very serious federalism concerns. Um, if you survey um, the, the folks in the states who are actually responsible for you know for reading this rule and figuring out you know, how it is this is going to go into effect and how it is that their state electric systems are going to be affected, um, they've recognized that they're going to have to undertake very significant duties uh, regardless of whether or not their state air agencies actually act to carry out the rule or not. And that's the kind of thing that at the end of the day may raise some very serious federalism concerns for Justice Kennedy. And I, I agree with David that uh, you know, Justice Kennedy does show sometimes a pragmatic streak and that he's going to be very concerned about regulatory authority for greenhouse gases. But I think you have to counterbalance that that with his, you know, historically very strong support uh, for the states and the fact that this this uh, statute in particular doesn't really say anything about invading that traditional state regime. All right, let's now open it up to audience questions. Uh, please wait for the microphone 
And when you do get the microphone, uh, identify yourself and any affiliation you may have. And please try to ask a question at the end of a long soliloquy, which we hope there will not be. I just have a question. My name's Judy Lamana. I'm with the Warrington Climate Change Group. Um, does the, and this is to Mr. Bookbinder. Does the Clean Power Plan do what EPA suggests it will do, reduce CO2 emissions significantly? I've read that with its state-by-state -state ratio targets and its benchmark year, I think it's 2005, the cuts won't be meaningful. This is a whole nother can of worms. Okay, um, the states basically have a choice, or not even much of a choice. EPA is shoehorning everyone into a cap-and-trade system, a mass-based cap-and-trade system. There's a lot of other ostensible choices they have, but those are, dare I say, somewhat illusory. Um, so everyone's going to go into a mass-based cap-and-trade system. Uh, two things about it. One, you can count tons really easily. We monitor them and we can count them. And if everyone goes into that system, then that's what you're going to wind up with. Uh, you're going to ha get those tons because there's going to be a certain number of, of permits issued, et cetera. Um, the flip side of that, by the way, is if the EPA made it incredibly easy for states to meet those targets, which is why the utilities, which, who were screaming bloody murder over the proposed rule, are now going mostly, yeah, we hate rules, we hate this rule, but it's really, we can, can we do it? Yeah, of course we can do it. So it's EPA gamed the numbers. I mean, it's actual gaming, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see if the environmental groups sue over this. If you take the EPA said you can do a rate, you can do a rate how many pounds per megawatt hour your sources emit, or you can do tons. And in the when the EPA did the conversion, they engaged in some really interesting math, so that the in fact, if you stuck with the rate, you'd be getting far more reductions than you do with the tons. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if any of the environmental groups uh, uh, decide to challenge over that particular um, jiggling of the numbers. Uh, my guess is they won't, um, but who knows? But it, it, the, I guess the short answer to your question is yes, given that everyone's going to go into the, the mass-based system unless we can convince some states to do a state carbon tax, um, which we think is a better way of doing it, um, yeah, you're going to get those tons. Sir. Uh, hello, my name is Mark Silbert. I'm from Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I don't have any current affiliation. Just listening to your discussion about Justice Kennedy, it sounds to me like you're kind of resigned to the fact that he's the only one that's going to be listening to any of this stuff, and everybody else's minds are made up, and they're not even going to be paying attention to it all these reams of documents that will be sent in. I mean, that's the impression I get. Is that what you are really, is that the picture you're really painting? I think, first of all, I'm not resigned. I, I deal with what I think is reality. Um, you know, I, would it be better if we had nine justices whose votes I couldn't even begin to predict? Yes. I think that'd be a much better system. We don't. Um, and so we have Justice Kennedy as the swing vote on this. 
and you know all the other eight are going to be heavily engaged because they're going to be they're they're going to be lobbying. Kennedy is going to get lobbied up the wazoo, um, and they're going to have to come up and they're they're going to be hitting him with their arguments on both sides of this. So, you know, that's just what our system uh, has produced. So let's deal with it. I mean, we have a red team and a blue team, even on the court. Uh, um, uh, uh, let me tell you a story. <laughs> what are you a realist? And, now, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you a story which I've never told publicly before about why we brought Massachusetts versus EPA. In the early 2000s, I was Sierra Club's lawyer in Washington, D.C., and I was engaged in the uh, work um, on the filibustering of George Bush's nominees uh, for the federal appeals, appeals courts. And I was also dealing with climate issues. and. In there had been, we, we, sorry, we knew coming out of California, California's vehicle emission standards, which have since been adopted by EPA, were going to be the first attempt to regulate carbon dioxide in the United States. That was it. Question, did the Clean Air Act allow this? I was sitting in my office one night and thinking about the California stuff, and I was involved in helping with the regulations and thinking about the, the regulatory fight, and it occurred to me that if we waited till California got to the D.C. Circuit, that its composition be much different than it was the day I was sitting there. And I sat down and I actually ran the numbers. I looked at every member of the D.C. Circuit. I looked at the number of vacancies. I looked at potential retirements, senior judges, the whole thing, and I ran a spreadsheets on this. And I said, well, if we get the question of EPA's authority to the D.C. Circuit now, we've got a 41% chance of drawing a good panel. If we wait and President Bush succeeds in getting confirmed the various judges he has nominated for the D.C. Circuit. By the time the California regs show up in the D.C. Circuit, we've got a 17% chance of drawing a good panel. And that's why we brought Massachusetts versus EPA. There was an old petition sitting around at EPA, brought by, submitted by a group called the International Center for Technology Assessment, which none of you have ever heard of. They had submitted a petition to EPA saying, you've got to regulate carbon dioxide from cars. And it sat at EPA and nothing was happening to it. So I called up the guys at ICTA and said, we're gonna sue EPA to get that petition decided. They're gonna reject it and say the Clean Air Act does not give us this authority and then we're gonna sue them over that. And that's what we did. And that's realism. The realism of judges is why we got Massachusetts versus EPA. Up there, please. Oh, hi, Sharon Bovat, voice of a moderate. I'm originally from California, and I lived there the first 28 years of my life. And what we found from the 2010 stimulus, which they've, I've actually talked to people at the Progressive Policy Institute, that it was $2 million per job created, and 
basically most of them were temp jobs. A lot of them were the green industries. And a lot of the subsidies, California is now saying that they don't want to give subsidies for electric cars for people that make over a half million dollars a year. So before this new proposal, that meant that everybody, even people that made over a million dollars a year income. Now, people do in California respect blue skies. I was in China and Beijing many times, but during the Olympics, the skies were blue. So I know that there's an issue with climate and carbon dioxide and with cars. And there has to be a way to explain to the people that there is a solution, but maybe the solution is a little bit more free market or it's giving subsidies to people that are middle class and not the rich and not having these ideas that obstruct businesses. And I think when people hear of another policy or this COP21 where they're going to come down with regulations and binding agreements, the average person is just frustrated, especially in California, when they see that the HOV lanes are fast passes for rich people that have an electric car and they have to sit in traffic. So when you're explaining this to a regular person, what do you say is the best that can come out of Paris? Thank you. Anybody want to address that? No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, frankly, um, when I've discussed um, Paris uh, with people, um, um, they, they've usually asked me to comment on some other topic. Um, <laughs> it's, 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 you know, the, the, the role of these uh, negotiations and the, the international, in the, the climate framework and uh, the international law aspects, um, it's all, frankly, just baffling. It's baffling uh, frequently for people in the field. We've as, as uh, David was saying, we, we don't remember what any of these acronyms necessarily stand for. I, I think the, the UN people perhaps have the same problem. Um, it, it's very complex, very baffling stuff, and uh, it's policy conducted at a level that I think is just lost on, uh, reasonably so, on, on most members of the uh, electorate who have uh, other things to focus on. Next question. Yes, right. Uh, let's go with Pat and then the right behind. It's Matt Michaels from Cato. Um, I believe it was in the microphone. Yeah. Uh, is it on? There yeah. Go. I believe it was in the Mercury case, though I might be wrong. It might have been the Michigan one. Um, Justice Thomas issued a concurring opinion in which he brought forth uh, the notion that maybe Chevron deference was not sacrosanct. Um, I am of two minds on that at least. I think it's potentially a massively slippery slope. But um, I've been hearing, I heard from, from Richard Epstein when we were in, Par or in London a while back, he thought the same thing. Um, if that becomes more the view of the court, will that change things dramatically with regard to implementation uh, mechanisms to implement things like INDCs out of Paris? The um, whole issue of deference to the administrative agencies, Chevron deference, Skidmore deference, our deference is very much a live issue. We've got two essays on the subject in the new Cato Supreme Court review that just came out. What's that? <laughs> Oh, you bet. <laughs> but who would like to comment on this whole issue of Peter? Uh, well, yeah, well, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, well, there's obviously been a, great, a lot of discussion about whether this, where the Supreme Court is going on Chevron, and it clearly makes 
uh, a number of the justices uncomfortable, Chevron does, in terms of deferring to administrative agency interpretation of laws. Judge, judges tend to think that's what we do, not administrative agencies. Um, I, the Supreme Court is not likely to uh, move quickly uh, on that kind of thing. We are not going to see, as far as I can tell, a decision out of the Supreme Court within the next year or two withdrawing Chevron or overturning Chevron. Uh, but you could see some chipping away. You know, in the, in the King versus Burwell case, the ATA case, uh, the ACA case, excuse me, uh, the Chief Justice uh, did say something very important for purposes of the 111D case, which is that uh, he didn't see any reason to defer to agency interpretations outside of that agency's area of expertise. In that case, it was the IRS, you know, interpreting health care policy. And that's us here in the 111D case in spades. I mean, you have EPA basically asserting expertise over every nook and cranny of the uh, electric utility system. If you read through some of the technical support documents, you would think that you're reading something from FERC or, or a state public utility commission, much less EPA. So that's undoubtedly going to be an issue in the case. But our deference did come up in the Perez case, the uh, authority of an administrative agency to interpret or reinterpret its own interpretations of a statute. And so that did generate quite a bit of discussion. And so that may be open to re, uh, revisiting. Anybody want to expand on? Yeah, I would say if, if you count the votes regarding our deference, um, and, I, and I did this, I think, um, a year or so ago, actually in an article for the Cato Supreme Court Review, I think. Yeah. Um, there, there are, there are, depending on how you count it, there are potentially four and a half uh, justices, and I, I put Kagan in a half because she's gone partway in this direction, um, who've, who've said that they would in all likelihood overrule our uh, should the proper case present itself. And there are a number of cases in the pipeline uh, that raised that issue. As to Chevron, I, I would I would I agree with what Peter said, but I, I would also note that uh, particularly uh, Justice Kennedy and the Chief Justice have shown uh, great interest uh, in, in what's commonly referred to as the major questions doctrine, the idea that when there are questions of intense uh, political and economic significance, uh, the court is not going to presume that Congress intended to delegate the authority to decide those questions to the agencies. And so in, that, in those instances, uh, those justices uh, who frequently, uh, you know, sometimes break uh, on statutory issues are probably more likely to side with the, the, you know, what you might think is the more textualist wing of the court um, in, in deciding those types of cases. For those non-lawyers in the audience who uh, only have a slim grasp of what we're talking about up here, we're talking about the very first word of the Constitution after the preamble, namely, all legislative power herein granted shall be vested in a Congress. And what we see today is that the Congress is delegating ever more of its legislative power in the form of regulatory power to the 300-plus agencies here in town where most of the law gets written today. David, did you want to add something? I just want to say one thing about that, which is, uh, and I've encouraged every member of Congress I've run into, which is the Clean Power Plan is is quite something. And, you know, you heard me uh, describe it as reaching deep into the economic f and uh, fabric of the United States and into state structures and the electricity sector, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if Congress doesn't like this, Congress should fix it. Yeah. It. Let, let Congress, for God's sakes, if you... Now, the only... Here's the thing. You can't just 
repeal the clean power plan. That's not going to work. There's no votes for it. There won't be votes for it even if there's a Republican president in the White House. There'll be 40 Democrats, 41 Democrats in the Senate who will filibuster that. So the question is, you got to if you get rid of the clean power plan, you got to replace it with something else. So you see, the, the point is that these regulations that go so heavily into the economy are being written, just as in the Affordable Care Act, are being written not by Congress, but by the agencies, the IRS in the case of, uh, of um, the Affordable Care Act or HHS and so on and so forth. Yes, sir. Uh, my name's Bill Newman, and uh, I'm with uh, HC Project Advisors. Right to the uh, to an observer, you have what looks like a somewhere between a crapshoot and a game of chicken between the supporters of the clean power plan and the opponents of it, with a great deal of certain uncertainty overladen on top of it, as David pointed out. You don't know who's going to be the president. You don't know which party is going to control the Congress going forward. And in fact, you don't even know that Justice Kennedy might not be, might or might not be there in 2018 or 19. And there are other justices, as we know, who also may not be there. And, and with respect to Peter, uh, for the people who are opponents of the plan, they would like some time to see if CCNS really works. They'd like to see how whether fracking is going to be further regulated to change the economics of gas generation. So my question to the panel is, when parties find themselves in a game of chicken or crapshoot, they frequently say, is there an alternative? And then my question to the panel is, is there an alternative to this crapshoot that the parties are engaged in? Uh, yes, the federal carbon tax. That's it. How do you say it? Uh, you talk to the Republicans in Congress and you tell them you hate the clean power plan. It's an abomination. Yes, it's absolutely. It's terrible. It's terrible. But we'll go stop fulminating and and come up with a piece of legislation that can pass both houses and get signed by the president, and that means a federal carbon tax. Anybody else want to comment on that? I mean, I think it's a practical matter. Uh, the, the, the uncertainty you speak of, you know, probably works in the opposite direction um, from what David is describing, at least for the time being. So long as there is this uncertainty and, you know, people are, have this view that they're either going to win entirely or lose entirely, there's not necessarily going to be much room for compromise. But should the, should the clean power plan be upheld? Should it be struck down? I mean, that may be the point at which um, you know there might uh, be a potential for some type of federal co you know federal level compromise. I can't see it happening before then, though. Sir, um, I had the idea for my question before Mr. Bookbinder just spoke. But um, one of the things that uh, was notable in the cap and trade legislation is that they couldn't get Democrat support, and, and there was a large uh, bipartisan agreement not to pass cap and trade. Uh, the question I wanted to ask the panel is that in the same way that the court has Chevron, it often has Chevron deference to agencies, does the court and should the court legally consider um, the vote in Congress where they did not pass cap and trade? How do, how do they take things like that into account and should they they give deference to uh, the fact that it didn't pass. 
The dog that did not bark, does it count? Peter is, I think, the only one of the three of us who's, Andrew, are you litigating the clean power pond? Yes. Oh, well, then these two guys should talk about what what the court should consider. (laughs) Peter? (laughs) Well, um, certainly uh, a significant argument in the case is going to be that EPA is trying to do uh, exactly what Congress refused to do. I mean, I was interested to hear David say that, you know, basically come right, not, come right out and say that this is a cap-and-trade program, clean power plant is a cap-and-trade program. I mean, that's what it is. Um, I think EPA tried to disguise that fact at the proposal stage, but <clears throat> when you read through the final, what was uh, finally promulgated, the, the, I mean, the, it, the, the fig leaf is off. Uh, it's there for everybody to see. This is a cap-and-trade program. This is, this is now not something like what Congress rejected. It is what Congress rejected. Uh, and that will be, um, you know, I'm sure front and center. It's already front and center if you read through the, uh, the stay motions that have been filed in, in the way this case will be argued. Andrew? I, I agree with that entirely. Oh, okay. Questions? All right. Oh, there's a, there's a question right there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, Steve Allen, Capital Research Center in Greenwatch. Um, as a... Uh, Present company accepted. Uh, as a lawyer with a science PhD, two things I don't have much confidence in are the uh, legal opinions of scientists and the science opinions of lawyers. And and in regard to, uh, and I appreciate Mr. Bookbinder's uh, cold-blooded, I guess, analysis of the uh, the Supreme Court. Uh, with regard to Justice Kennedy, uh, do you have any insight, or does anyone else have any insight? How would he determine uh, what? the science is in this matter. Does he read the New York Times that morning? And that's how he gets his, uh, his, his I, I understand that people, the president, what, what, can you give me any insight into his thought processes? What he would, uh, would he just try to analyze what's presented to him? Does he bring in uh, everything that uh, he knows from watching the news? Uh, uh, apply the same sort of cold-blooded analysis to, uh, to his thought processes in that regard, uh, if you have any insight in that. Yeah, that would make you a very wealthy man if you... Uh, yeah, no, really. And, and you know, someday I'm going to run into Justice Kennedy, and he's going to hear me you know, <laughs> say, are you the guy who's running around, you know, telling people you know what I'm going to do? That's, and I'll have no explanation. I'll just say, I'm really sorry. Can I buy you a drink? Um, <laughs> your question is, as to the science, I don't think the science is really much of an issue. Um, interestingly, the only climate-related issue the Supreme Court declined to take up was a challenge to the endangerment finding. That was part of the, uh, of, of the last case that went up, what was called the UARG case, um, and that was presented, the D.C. Circuit upheld the, the, uh, the EPA's endangerment finding, and that was, you couldn't even get four votes uh, to accept that for cert. So I don't think the science is going to be much of an issue uh, in this case. I don't disagree with that at all. Uh, you know, it's interesting. You're going to see, um, you know, if and when this does get to the Supreme Court, of course, you're going to see amicus briefs on both sides uh, going on endlessly uh, about various scientific issues. And at the end of the day, it may amount to a sentence here or a sentence there in one of the opinions, but it's, it's just not a central issue. All right. We have reached the uh, end of our session. And let's have a warm round of applause for our <laughs> panel. <laughs> <laughs>